On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. As we follow the life of Jesus, we're focusing just at the moment on Holy Week. And this conversation is called His Anguish. And it reflects what moment that's recorded in the Bible, Mike? Oh, it, it reflects one of those moments when Jesus expressed deep anguish over what he knew was about to happen to his own people. Remember, he'd grown up as a Jew. He was a Jew and he knew what was down the road for Israel. Um, it would all come to pass in the Jewish-Roman War, 66 to 70 AD, and it would climax in the total destruction of the temple and the city, just as Jesus prophesied. And rather than have any hint of, it serves you right, you should have accepted me. As he looks forward prophetically and sees that, his heart breaks with anguish over what he sees about to happen. Maybe it would be good just to hear the words from the Bible. Yeah, let, let's do that, shall we? Well, it's recorded for us in Luke 19, uh, verses 41 to 44. And just to set it in context, it's actually part of what happens as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday that we look at in, in another episode. But this is a little snippet that happens uh, within that whole thing. So here's what Luke records. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls. They won't leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Are there many occasions in the Bible where there's a record that Jesus actually wept? <laughs> no, do you know what? There aren't. Um, probably the only one is when he weeps at the graveside of his friend Lazarus and that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, underlining, of course, his very real humanity, that even though he knew what the outcome was going to be for Lazarus on that occasion, he would raise him from the dead. He still experienced the pain, not so much of Lazarus gone, but the pain that he saw his sisters Mary and Martha experiencing. And Jesus here is, is lamenting and weeping because he... He can see the pain that is coming Jerusalem's way, Israel's way. Why? Because they didn't recognize this time when their own Messiah came to save them. And all that he prophesied there about, you know, not one stone being left on another, your children being dashed to the ground. Sadly, these are the things that happened uh, as the climax to that four-year war when Rome had decided it had enough and absolutely devastated the city and the temple that lies just so close to us as we look across the Kidron Valley to it. Just explain where we are and why we're here. Well, we are on the Mount of Olives. Now, let's just get a little bit of geography. If you imagine in your mind's eye a map of Jerusalem north at the top, on the east side of Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley 
runs down outside the city walls. And then to the east of the Kidron Valley is this Mount of Olives where we are at the moment. So sitting where we are at the moment, we can uh, look over to the west to see the city of Jerusalem as it sets out today. Of course, it's dominated in our time by Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, but it's where they are now standing that the great temple would have been. And it's as Jesus looks over there, he knows what's coming. Not one stone's going to be left in place, and they weren't. I mean, there's really nothing left of it. It was destroyed utterly. And his heart is breaking because of what he sees happening. And it's if only, even at this stage, if only at this stage you could still turn to your Messiah and find your salvation, but he knows they won't. And sadly, you know, therefore they would be lost and the generations to come would be lost when Romans destroyed that city. So we are here on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city and we're, we're sitting by a church called Dominus Flavit, which is Latin for the Lord wept. And I, I love this little church. It's actually quite small. Uh, it's built in white uh, limestone with a, well, what was a, a copper roof, but it's tarnished, so it looks quite gray now. But the whole shape of it is done as though it were a teardrop dropping from the Lord's eyes. And at each corner up at the top, um, there are four lacrimosa, the little glass vessels that women at that time used to collect their tears into. So it's full of symbolism. And as you go inside a very simple church, some carvings on the wall. But what's beautiful about this church as you go inside and sit, there's only one window in it. And the window is on the western side. Now that's very unusual. Most churches face east. This one faces west. Why? Because it's facing where Golgotha was, where the empty tomb was. So that's what it's looking out to. And there's this semicircular window, a huge semicircular window behind the altar that you can look out through. But on the altar, there is a cross. And that cross, as you're looking at Jerusalem, dominates over the whole city. And of course, dominates over even the greatest symbol perhaps of Islam after the Kaaba in Mecca, this Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. It's almost as if to say the risen Jesus is Lord over all. And you might reject him, you might turn away from him, you might deny him, but he still wins and he still reigns. Because of its association with teardrops, just take me back to what you were just saying about the ladies, the women who collected their teardrops in these little glass vessels. What's, what's that all about? Well, there was thought to be something rather special uh, about tears. Uh, to be honest, it's a bit mystical and it's a bit magical and it's certainly not something that you find in the Bible. So it reflects a, a cultural practice at that time that in collecting your tears like that, you were collecting them and also then able to keep them. It's a, it's a bit of a, a sort of memorial of your love for your lost one. So that's what uh, Balucci, who designed this, he designed a number of these beautiful chapels in the Holy Land. He, he was sort of trying to pick up that cultural reference there. But it's capturing the sense of anguish, for sure, that this church uh, has been built for. And the anguish of Jesus, I suppose it's fair to say, we don't reflect on it 
maybe often enough depending on our Christian tradition. <laughs> do you know what? We probably don't. I suppose there are some traditions that do that perhaps more than others, particularly if they follow some sort of lectionary or a cycle of the church here, those that don't. Do you know what? I'd be hard-pressed to think when I last heard a sermon on the anguish of Jesus, maybe I prompt myself there and think, well, perhaps I'd better preach one soon. But it, it, it's not a common theme, is it? It's picked up in some traditions on the Via Dolorosa, the anguish that he feels there on his final walk to the cross, and we look at that in another episode. But the thought that Jesus feels anguished about things, deeply, deeply constrained in his heart, that he feels pain, the thought that Jesus feels pain over something, is actually a really powerful thought for us to have, isn't it? You know, he felt deep, deep pain then over what he knew was about to happen to Jerusalem. But since we've called our series Jesus Then and Now, I suppose then we have to think, well, what would it be that Jesus would feel deep, deep pain? What would bring Jesus to tears these days? I find that very challenging to think about. It's a challenge for us today because what would bring us to tears? Yeah, and you know what? I suppose very often for many of us, it, it's not very much, if we're honest, unless it touches me or my family. At that point, of course, we're all very quick to be moved. But I wonder what, what brings us to anguish, what brings us to tears. You know, getting news from around the world now is easier than it ever has been before, hasn't it? We turn on our TVs, we open our phones, we look at our apps, and it's so easy to skim the news and think, what's happened? Oh, yes, he's invaded this country. Oh, yes, that, there's been an economic crash there. Oh, there was a disaster with a plane or a, or a bus there. But, you know, one of the little things I've just tried to teach myself to do over the years is when I see things like this, do I always feel anguish over them? No, I don't, if I'm honest, because I'm not emotionally connected to them. Some move me more than others. There are some where I do feel anguish. But what I've tried to do with all of them is to let them sort of prompt me and stir me to offer up a quick prayer. Here's a quick example. Whenever an ambulance passes me with its lights and its siren on, and I probably do this because my father used to be a paramedic many years ago, I lift a quick prayer up for that person, whoever it is in that ambulance. Now, I, you know, who knows what might happen if we as Christians were to feel a little bit more anguish, a little bit more, oh, wow, I wonder what's going on there. Even if it's not the deep anguish that Jesus did, at least to have that concern of thinking, my goodness, this is a challenging time, isn't it? And then to turn that in a prayer to our Heavenly Father who loves to hear our prayers and who does love to listen, as we've seen in another episode. Who knows what that could bring about? And this little church, which, as you say, Dominus Flavit, representing the teardrops, if you like, even of Jesus, we're acknowledging, are we, that he was actually distraught from what he could see was going to be happening? Incredibly distraught. Um, you know, Jesus was able to see what was coming so often. And personally, I don't think that was because he sort of used his divine power at that moment, because I think that leaves us with a sort of Clark Kent Superman type model of the incarnation where one minute he's Jesus, 
the man here on earth and then he sort of just pulls back his jacket a bit and oh yep just seen into the future and he's superman he's he's god he really did become a human being the new testament you know stresses this again and again yes he was still god but god who fully and completely became a true real human being so how did he know things about the future how did he know lazarus was going to rise again how did he know that jerusalem was going to be destroyed in the way that it did well i think his father told him like father can tell us he he gave him what the new testament calls a word of knowledge knowing something that you can't just know you know it would be easy to say well he just read the political writing on the wall didn't he well, I, I don't think that's good enough because, do you know what? There were lots of messianic riots during the lifetime of Jesus. Most of them were quickly put down by Rome. But to see that there would be an uprising that would lead Rome eventually to say, enough is enough, that is it, and destroy this city and destroy that temple that had been there ever since it had been rebuilt after the exiles returned, and, and then much expanded and beautified by King Herod the Great, to think that that, the very centre of faith for God's people, would be destroyed. No one could see that out of political astuteness. Jesus saw this because, quite simply, he spent time with his father and prayed, and the father showed him it, and it moved him to anguish and tears and to prayer. Are there any other examples in the Bible where we get a sense of Jesus' heart for Jerusalem? Yeah, do you know what? There's, there's one just a, a few chapters earlier, again, in Luke. It's in Luke chapter 13 and um, from verse 34. And once again, we get an example here of, of Jesus' anguish and sorrow over Jerusalem and his own people. And here we read Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent you. In other words, you who constantly reject God's messengers. The same idea that he'd had uh, in the later passage that we've been looking at here when they rejected the one that God sent. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You didn't recognize that Messiah was coming. Well, throughout the ages, they killed the prophets and stoned those sent to them, Jesus said. But then he goes on to say, rather than you're a wicked, miserable lot and you deserve to have God wipe your hands of you. No, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. So look, your house is left to you desolate and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So again, Jesus is, is showing his concern, his anguish there, his knowledge of what's going to happen. But, but what does he want to do? He said, oh, my heart aches. I would just love to gather you. And perhaps all of us have seen you know, uh, hens or wildlife gathering their little ones to themselves under their wings. What, what a tender picture of our God in heaven that he wants to gather us to himself as intimately as that, to draw us close and with his wings to protect us. A very Old Testament image from the Psalms, of course, the Lord will protect you beneath his wings. And there once again is, is his pain, his anguish, his longing that, 
that people just wouldn't see what God wanted to do for them, wouldn't listen to the prophets that they, he'd sent, wouldn't listen now to the Messiah that had come among them. And from this particular vantage point, looking across, as you say, to old Jerusalem, Jesus' sights would have been on Jerusalem, of course, from here. And that didn't stop him. The anguish didn't stop him. Yeah, you know, according to tradition, there in that church is the rock on which he sat when he did this. Now, you know, whether it was that rock or another rock, frankly, who knows. But I'll tell you what, it's very close to here. And he did look across and he saw what you and I can see now as we look. The Kidron Valley down below us, the old walls of the city still remaining in this part, but where should be the temple? No, no temple anymore. A lot of the old buildings destroyed and the pain that he must have felt as he looked across and saw that view. I, I suppose it's a bit like any of us. You know, just imagine sitting, looking over at whatever your favorite view is in life, some beautiful place, some beautiful scene, and yet God's told you, do you know what? Within 30, 40 years, I am utterly going to destroy this and everyone in it. I, I think our hearts would be, what? But this is so beautiful. And God, how can you do that? That's your temple. I mean, here's the crazy thing. This is the temple of the Lord. It, it was supposed to be all about him. And God says, but you have drifted so far away from me in your hearts that that house is meaningless. And it's so meaningless, I'm going to remove it from my sight and you with me. It's one thing getting emotional, if we can put it like that, for people, for friends, family and so on. But this is a city. Yeah, I'm sure it was, well, one, because of the people who would be in the city. But two, you see, um, this city had a long, long history, didn't it? Uh, it goes right back to the Old Testament. It was there on that city that God tested Abraham by calling him to sacrifice Isaac and intervening and providing a lamb himself instead on the very place where Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be offered. It would be the place that King David would make as his capital. When Joshua and the people of Israel entered the promised land and began to take it, you know, there were certain cities they couldn't take. Uh, and there was one right here in front of us. It was called Jebus at the time, inhabited by the Jebusites. And they simply couldn't take it. It was too strongly fortified. And it stayed like that, uh, sort of a little enclave within their midst, until the time of King David. And King David managed to conquer the city by sending his men and climbing up the water shaft that went up onto the inside of the city and attacking them from within and he made this his dwelling place he made this his home he built a temple here and it was here that God promised him that a temple would one day be built not not by him because he said you've had too much blood on your hands as a warrior but rather by your son and Solomon built that first temple so it has a long long history this is a a city full of the promises of God going right back to Abraham going right back to David going right back 
to Solomon. It was full of history, frankly, full of ups and downs as well as people trusted God and didn't trust God, trusted him through good kings of that city, like King Hezekiah, who trusted when Assyria came to try and take the city and they couldn't because he spread out their threatening letter in the temple before the Lord. Wicked kings like King Manasseh, who even sacrificed children down in this valley below us. So it had a mixed history. But Jesus understood that this wasn't just a city. It was just bricks and stones. It, it, it symbolized something. And in the Psalms, of course, many of which David wrote, it spoke about God having chosen this city because he loved it, to set his name here on earth, to be his throne here on earth. And that's how the temple was seen, the Holy of Holies, his very throne here on earth. So, this was full of history. This was full of God. And it was all going to be destroyed. I've heard it said that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Does that relate back to what happened then? Yes, I think it does. Although I have to say that I think that verse is, is sometimes slightly misused. Um, it's in the Psalms and it's an appeal to the Jewish people to pray for their own city, to pray for their own capital. So at that level, it is simply the equivalent uh, of Jesus saying to you and I, Mike, David, I, I want you to pray for the peace of the UK. I want you to pray for London, the capital, the government, all that happens there. Now, there are some Christians who take that and almost make it a mantra that because the Bible says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Every single Christian ought to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And if they aren't, then they're being disobedient to Scripture. I have to say, I, I think using the Scripture like that is really taking it out of context. But in context, absolutely, it was calling upon God's people to pray for the protection of their own capital city. Why? Because God had made promises over it. As you're reflecting on... Jesus' anguish in this place. What does that help you with as you deal with your own anguish and your own life's troubles? Well, two things. I, you know, all of us face anguish at times that we didn't go looking for. The anguish of uh, a loved one being seriously ill or passing away. And what this anguish tells me is first and foremost that my saviour went through anguish himself. Whatever it is that I'm going through, he understands. I can bring it to him. He will not turn me away. He knows what pain, emotional pain, is all about. He experienced it himself. So I find encouragement from that. But second, I find provocation because I'm challenged once again, as I think I said earlier, that what is it that I get in anguish about? What is it that troubles me these days enough to earnestly seek God about? When I see refugees fleeing from their war-torn country, when I see women being turned into sex slaves, promised that they'll be given a job if they come to the West and then suddenly find they've been turned into prostitutes. Thank God for organisations, Christian organisations often, that get involved on the cutting edge with things like that. But when I see that on TV, do, does that give me anguish? Do I call out to God? So from his anguish here that we recall at Dominus Flavit and this tear-shaped church, 
I get both encouragement that he understands my anguish in those times of life, but also provocation that maybe there ought to be a few more things in life that I do experience anguish over and then turn that into prayer. And those verses you read from, I think it was Luke chapter 13, the lament of Jesus, made me think, have we lost the significance of lament in our modern world today? Yeah, do you know what? We probably have, and it's interesting, but there is a a trend, a movement within Christianity at the moment, and it started among scholars, but I think it's filtering down, that we have lost something of lament, that we've lost what it means to bring our sorrow before God without needing to get fixed quickly, uh, without needing to go to the front of the meeting and get a quick prayer and be sent home with everything sorted out. You know, if that happens, wonderful. But there are laments in the Psalms, loads of laments in the Psalms. The book of Lamentations, the whole book is that. A lament weeping over this city when it was destroyed the first time by the Babylonians. So maybe there ought to be more room for lament where we bring our sorrow, our sadness before God and we pour out our hearts and we sob before him without feeling the need to get fixed quickly and knowing it's okay to bring those feelings to him. We're in a city, Jerusalem here, which brings together people from all around the world and people experience and express their sorrow I'm sure, in different parts of the world, (laughs) in lots of different ways. You know, we Brits, as it were, stiff upper lip and all that. Yeah, um, hang around here for long enough and listen to a funeral and listen to the weeping and the wailing, and you'll hear that in many cultures it's very different. I sometimes think in the West, you know, we so suppress our feelings at times like that, or we let them out, but in the wrong way. Um, You know, like we tell everyone on Snapchat or on one of the other social media channels, you know, and we we pour it all out there. But it it, it can be pretty superficial and pretty dressed up for our readers, as it were. Maybe it wouldn't be bad every so often to say, do you know what? For goodness sake, lose that stiff British upper lip or that French lip or that Canadian lip or that Hong Kong lip, because we know there are people listening to this podcast all over the world. And understand, it really is all right to cry. Remember, at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. That doesn't mean he just went, (laughs) and that was it. He wept. This was one of his best friends. He felt pain for Martha and Mary, and he sobbed his heart out. What an encouragement to us, that is, that at times it's okay for us to sob our hearts out too. Just do it in the presence of Jesus and see what he would do with you. Is there any sense in which the way Jesus wept bitterly is any different to the rest of us? Huh. What a question. Well, look, he became fully, truly human. So I don't think there's anything mystical about his weeping. But I think the depth with which he did that weeping, so it wasn't different in kind. I think it was different in depth because he saw it and he grasped it and it got his heart. And the trouble is, we in the West can be so busy today with our own lives and our own affairs that we just don't take time at times to let our hearts be gripped by what's going on in this world like his was. As we've come down to this little church, we've passed the 
tombstones of Jews who've been buried here. And there's a sort of strange irony about that. <laughs> yeah, all along this hillside, looking towards Jerusalem, is row after row after row of Jewish stone tombs, or in some areas of what's called ossuaries, which are boxes in which the bones of the dried-out bodies were, were then put. And they're all facing towards Jerusalem. And the belief is among Jews that uh, on the day that Messiah returns, <laughs> they missed him first time, didn't they? On the day Messiah returns, when he calls forth his people, they will be able to stand up in their tombs and look straight towards Jerusalem and see him. Such a shame they didn't see him first time, isn't it? As we reflect then on Jesus' anguish at this point in Holy Week, if you like, just pray for us as we consider what that means for us today. Lord Jesus, we pray together for those who are weeping at the moment, for those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, the loss of health, the loss of home, the loss of a friend, the loss of a job. And we ask that as they weep, they would draw close to you and find the support of the one who knows what it means to weep and who can strengthen and succour through this time. And for those of us who simply have been too busy in life to weep or lament, Lord, teach us what it means to stop and to feel the pain of others from time to time and then to bring that to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.